This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is brought to you by B&H Publishing, presenting The Storm-Tossed Family by Russell Moore, a new book about how the cross reshapes the home. Learn more at www.stormtossedfamily.com. With his whole nature in combination and harmony, God acts out his own completely consistent opposition to evil. He opposes it with every fiber of his being. And this opposition is his wrath. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, Five Truths About the Wrath of God, was preached by Mark Dever at Ocean City Bible Conference in Ocean City, New Jersey, on September the 11th, 2018. The text is Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Listen now to Mark Dever on five truths about the wrath of God. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. Lord, we thank you not for crushing us with your word as you justly could have done, but we thank you for speaking the very word that we've been singing of with joy, a word of salvation to us. Help us to consider now, Lord, uh, what it is you have saved us from. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember some years ago when I lived up in Boston hearing a theologically liberal minister tell the story of being accosted on the street by a fundamentalist who asked him, friend, are you saved? And the minister recounting the story relished his bold and he thought insightful answer to the man, Saved from what? That's what he said as he told the congregation in Boston about that event. That whole crisis, share and scare way to conceive of Christianity was just ridiculous. Or at least so thought this minister and his congregation when they laughed with him at his clever response to the man who'd approached him on the street. The man's question was a good one, wasn't it? Are you saved? Saved from what also was a good question. Maybe not in the way he meant it. What do we Christians go around warning people about? What do we think we ourselves need to be saved from? It's very popular to say that we are saved to God. We are saved to fellowship with Him, to new life, to meaning, to purpose, and all of that is fine and true. But the whole image of being saved suggests some peril, some imminent danger, some sort of Damocles poised above our heads about to fall. What is our danger? What is our peril? What do we need to be saved from? Well, think about conversations that you've had with friends about the good news of Jesus Christ. Why are you telling your non-Christian friend that he or she needs to become a Christian? Think back to a recent conversation. Because they need to be saved from what? From the negative consequences of their sin, obesity, 
lung cancer, possible death through drunk driving, AIDS. What do we need to be saved from? Meaninglessness? Unfulfilledness? Friends, I'll tell you what the Bible says we need to be be saved from. The wrath of God. This evening I want us to consider five truths about the wrath of God. And while so much more could be said, I want to focus on just one appropriate passage of Scripture for our topic. If you'd open your Bibles to the New Testament, let's go right to the end, to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, beginning at verse 15. Revelation 11, beginning at verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Tonight I want to suggest for your consideration five important truths about the wrath of God. First, God's wrath is personal. God's wrath is personal. Some people have suggested that the whole idea of God being wrathful is so difficult that we would do better to understand God's wrath as simply the impersonal working out of cause and effect in the moral universe. Uh, I had the privilege of studying as an undergrad uh, at Duke University with James Price, who did his PhD at Cambridge with C.H. Dodd, with whom this particular idea is associated. In the the 20th century, it is this man more than any other probably, who forwarded the idea that we can understand God's wrath best by thinking of it as something impersonal. And we understand the impulse to do that. I mean, in a crowd this large, surely there are those who were brought up in some homes who knew all too well the ugly underside of a wrath which is personal, quixotic, unpredictable, violent, senseless, mean, ugly, abusive, not really things that we either want to ascribe to God or to imagine that God is like. But friends, it is possible to conceive of God's wrath being fully personal, but not being random or abusive. If we look at those few verses from Revelation 11, you'll notice that in verse 18, the voices in heaven refer very clearly to wrath as belonging to God. Your wrath, they call it. It's In chapter 6, he calls it the wrath of the Lamb. 
And this is consistent with the Bible's presentation about God's wrath throughout the New Testament and the Old. So if you're writing down verses, Psalm 7, verse 11, we read that God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses His wrath every day. He said even earlier through Moses in Deuteronomy 32, See now that I myself am He, there is no God besides me, I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal, and no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare, as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. So far is God's wrath from being an impersonal working out, it seems that God's wrath is instead quite precisely an expression of God's very own personal opposition to what is wrong. In fact, God expressing his wrath both in his delaying it and in his pouring it out, is part of how he reveals himself and he glorifies himself in his creation. So we read in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9, For my own name's sake I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise I hold it back from you, so as not to cut you off. And in Ezekiel five thirteen, we read, then my anger will cease, and my wrath against them will subside, and I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath upon them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. And in Ezekiel twenty-five seventeen, we read, I will carry out great vengeance on them and punish them in my wrath. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I take vengeance on them. The prophet Nahum goes so far as to say, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God, the Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. This is why in the New Testament, in Romans 9, Paul could refer to God showing his wrath as making his power known. With his whole nature in combination and harmony, God acts out his own completely consistent opposition to evil. He opposes it with every fiber of his being. And this opposition is his wrath. It is his personal displeasure. It is, it is his divine contradiction of sin and wickedness. It is his divine assurance of justice and holiness in the universe that he has made. It may be his strange work, as it's put in Isaiah 28, but it is still his own work of justly punishing all wrongdoing. God's wrath is personal. Second, God's wrath is certain. God's wrath is certain. Notice that in these verses from Revelation. No power on earth can prevent it, hinder it, delay it, as the psalmist says in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Messiah, what? In vain. To absolutely no effect whatsoever. It would be as effective as you standing on the coast of the Carolinas and telling Florence, no. It's just not in your ability to do anything as an individual against it. The natural and social forces of the world are at God's disposal. Famine and hurricanes do his bidding. All creation from untamed animals 
to earthquakes are his servants in bringing about his judgment. So complete is his power presented that even his extraterrestrial creation acts in concert with his judgment on earth. The sun is blackened, the moon turns red, the stars fall. More than once in the book of Revelation, the fixed points of the world, the the sky, the mountains, the islands, are presented as being removed or fleeing away. Look at verse 18 here in our passage. The time has come for judging the dead. Not even death itself can hide us from the searching judgments of God. Now, if the heavens above and the earth beneath are subject to him, how could John's readers even begin to think that those presently persecuting them, enforcing idolatry, could escape? They could be certain, even confident, that there would be no circumstances that would finally ever overwhelm these early Christians who were suffering persecution. There would be no persecution that would ever torment them, regardless of how powerful or apparently beyond the reach of true justice, without answering to the God of heaven for it. Evil's victory would be only apparent and temporary. What about for you? this evening. Is there anyone within the sound of my voice who thinks that you can avoid the judgment of God? That you have it within your power to avoid His wrath, His scrutiny, His assessment, His evaluation, His judgment? You cannot. When I first came to D.C., I had the privilege of serving as the interim chaplain of the Senate for a couple of weeks. Uh, Lloyd Ogilvy, I mean Richard Richard Halverson, who had served in that capacity for 10 years, retired. There was kind of bridge till Lloyd Ogilvy came, and so for a couple of weeks, I did that. Part of what you have to do in that is you have to write out your prayers ahead of time and send them into the chaplain's office, not because they care two hoots about your theology. They just want to make sure you're not advising on any bills before the Senate. As a result, I have all these prayers written down. And I was looking over this one, thinking about what I was speaking about tonight. And one of those days I prayed, and along with a renewed sense of your bounty, we pray for a renewed sense of our accountability. Remind all who work here in massive buildings which seem so permanent. Remind them of the brevity of life and the certainty of judgment. I had no idea in what fire and tragedy we would see that worked out just a few years later in 2001, 17 years ago today. If you recall, the reason the Bible calls you and me to lay aside revenge is because of the certainty we can have of God's justice. It's not that we Christians transcend a desire for justice. Rather, we realize our inability to be sufficiently just. And we know that there is one who is committed to justice by his very being. We read in Acts 17.31 that he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. The Old Testament is full of references to the coming day of God's wrath. Do you doubt that God will judge the world? Paul wrote to the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, 
you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Are there perhaps situations which you know of, perhaps you've read of in the papers, or you've seen at work, or maybe you've even experienced firsthand in your family? Situations in which the wrong seems to go forever unanswered. The Bible makes it quite clear to us that it will not always be like that. It will not always be so. As surely as we are sitting here this evening, God will draw a line under it all and say, enough. God's judgment is certain. Of this we can be confident. God's wrath is personal, and it is certain. Third, God's wrath is final. God's wrath is final. Again, in the passage here in Revelation 11, notice the finality of God's wrath. There's no appeal from his judgment. When God judges, the response is the silence of assent and the songs of worship. The opposition clearly presented in Revelation eventually provokes the statement in Revelation chapter 10 that there will be no more delay. And so we read here in chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. He will reign forever and ever. There is no end to that reign forever. And that is the same duration which is presented time and time again in this book for the judgment of God in Revelation chapter 14 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 21. It's consistent with what we read in John's Gospel. In John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Friends, the first readers of Revelation would, I think, have gotten a double message from this. One was that things were going to get worse. They thought that they were bad now, and they may have been, but they should know that they're not as bad as they would get. But the other thing that they should know is that there would be an end to their troubles. And that end would be as permanent and as lasting as the rule of God himself. Once the judgment had been completely poured out, there would be no more prospects of terror for these believers. The same message of the finality of God's judgment should affect different ones of us in different ways. For some here who have not considered this before, you should prepare yourself. Ask your Christian friend how you can prepare yourself to face God's certain judgment. Speak to another Christian friend. Ask. We will happily share with you Jesus' teaching about turning from our sins and trusting in Him and the newness of life that He has for us. 
<clears throat> Surely this must give some others of us here this evening some peace to know that life is not simply a never-ending cycle of struggling and suffering, of joys that end and sorrows that endure. We can have peace knowing that there's purpose. You know, one thing which separates Christianity from many of the world's religions is just this, knowing that history is not merely a recycling of ourselves again and again on an everlasting treadmill but that it actually has a point in time, a focus in history, finally around the throne of God. Friends, God's judgment is final. God's wrath is personal and certain and final. Fourth, God's wrath is horrible we really need to go no further than the images of natural disaster used here in chapter 11 and verse 19. You see that final verse of the passage that I read? And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. How often do we hear of terrible earthquakes in Japan or China or Turkey? The accounts are always appalling. The apparent randomness of sudden death. The strange dilemmas in which people are left when parts of their world that they assumed were secure suddenly just vanish in front of them. The fear it seems to leave people in. I remember reading one newspaper account of a little girl asking her mother, Mommy, are we going to have another one tonight? As if her mother knew or could do anything about it. God's wrath is so fearful. It will cause unmitigated terror. Not the kind of safe mock terror that gives us a rush in movie theaters, but the kind of terror that some of us have known when we have felt ourselves genuinely to be in grave and imminent danger. In the last verse of chapter 16, we read, from the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. The images throughout this book of Revelation, from supernatural prisons to the abyss, to the judgments of plagues and earthquakes, and even an eternal lake of fire, they are all unimaginably horrible. Some have called these images unbearable, and I can certainly understand why. But friend, if they are true, we will help no one by making them seem less terrible than they really are. Looking at the horrendous nature of judgment presented in this book, this Cambridge New Testament scholar that I mentioned, C.H. Dodd, wrote that, quote, the God of the apocalypse can hardly be recognized as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Close quote. But friends, I think what we read in the book of Revelation is very much of a piece with the way Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in perhaps the earliest letter we have in the New Testament. God's judgment is right. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. You know, sometimes in academic circles, like the kind of places Don has to hang out, Paul, or somebody like Paul, is presented as having the final shaping influence on Christian doctrine. The last thing in the world you would ever really think happened to form Christian doctrine is the teaching of Jesus Christ. But on this point, at least, I think if you look through the New Testament, the closest parallel you're going to find in the New Testament to these kinds of words about judgment are not in Paul. They're not in Peter. They're not in John's other writings. No, what, where we'll find them is in Jesus' teaching, like in Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus' teaching is consistent with what we find in the Old Testament scriptures. So in Psalm 90, verse 11, the psalmist asks, Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. In Jeremiah 10.10, we read, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When He is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure His wrath. In Nahum, we read, The mountains quake before Him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at His presence the world and all who live in it, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Friends, from the fall to the flood, from Egypt to the exodus to Israel in exile, God has revealed himself as a God of righteous wrath. This is part of the story of the Bible about who God is. I remember one time when I was going around in England and giving evangelistic addresses, I was over in Oxford, and there was a student who was uh, a bright, he was reading philosophy, a bright student, and this was his problem with Christianity, and as we walked along, he had been brought up as an evangelical, but he was having real questions, and he was playing with the idea of annihilationism, that is, that if you're not saved, when you die, you just cease to exist. And... As we talked, I told him that I had been an agnostic, and my big problem as a non-Christian was the problem of evil, so I, I, I felt a kind of emotional tug in my heart at these very kind of things we're talking about tonight. But I said to him, I'm not sure why I would make, want to make God's wrath appear any less terrible. Why would I think I would serve anyone by making them feel a little less bad? about what it would be like to be under the wrath of God. When Jonathan Edwards preached his now famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, up in Enfield, Connecticut, those listening began to cry out for God's mercy. Feeling themselves slipping down into hell, some shrieked, they clung to their pews, others simply wept and prayed. Friends, contemplating the wrath of God as a sinner is powerful. And doesn't this book, even in our age of overstimulated imaginations from the almost unbelievable special effects we see in movies, doesn't it still bring about awe in those of us gathered here this evening who believe? Christ himself is the judge who will pronounce the final malediction, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Surely our response as we see God's holiness displayed in the lightning flashes of his judgments will be like the response of Moses to hide. Or Isaiah or these elders here in Revelation to fall on our faces. Or like Job who said at the end of it all, my ear has heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The Puritan minister, William Gurnall, said in his Christian in complete armor, as he was meditating on this terror of God's coming wrath, when I consider how the goodness of God is abused and perverted by the greatest part of mankind, I cannot but be of this mind who said, the greatest miracle in the world is God's patience and bounty to an ungrateful world. Oh, what would God not do for his creatures if thankful who thus heaps the coals of his mercies upon the heads of his enemies. But think not, sinners, that you will escape thus. God's mill goes slow, but it grinds small. The more admirable his patience and bounty now are, the more dreadful and insupportable will be that fury which ariseth out of his abused goodness. Nothing is blunter than iron, Yet when sharpened, it hath an edge that will cut mortally. Nothing is smoother than the sea, yet when stirred into a tempest, nothing rageth more. Nothing is so sweet as the patience and goodness of God, and nothing so terrible as His wrath when it takes fire. God's wrath is horrible. So God's wrath is personal, and God's wrath is certain, and God's wrath is final. And God's wrath is horrible. Finally, fifth, God's wrath is right. Notice that the heavenly beings here in this passage in Revelation, when God exercises his judgment, they don't apologize. They don't avert their gaze in embarrassment. Oh, I don't like this part. They are publicly praising God for being like this. There are words of praise from the elders around the throne. Verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. There's no question of God's judgments being uncertain or ineffective or inadequate, nor is there any question of God's judgments being wrong. There is no cruelty in the biblical picture of God's wrath. Indeed, God is praised throughout the Bible for his righteous wrath. So in Psalm 76, verse 10, we read, Surely your wrath against men brings you praise. God's judgment is right, in every sense of the word. God's judgment is right in that it is complete. No claim is left unmet. If you look at seal 5 back in Revelation chapter 6, you'll find that the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, they call out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then in Revelation 15, we read, with the seven last plagues, God's wrath is completed. 
Friends, the whole pattern in the vision of Revelation that's presented here to us underscores the completeness of God's judgment. The fact that there are three whole series of them presented here in Revelation. Each of them composed of seven judgments, like the seven days of creation. So here there is the judgment leading to the new creation. God's judgment is complete. God's judgment is also right in the sense of being accurate. No malefactor is left unpunished. No innocent person is menaced. And God's wrath is right in the sense that it's appropriate. No further injustice is done by God's punishment. It's not like the vendettas of medieval Italy. The family blood feuds that would lay waste to families and even villages through revenge. Each act of retribution for a past wrong spawning another one for the future. No, there's nothing like that here. One thing I'm particularly struck by is the response of the people in the book of Revelation to God's judgments. Have you ever noticed this? Very interesting to read through the book of Revelation, just looking for the response of the people who are judged. So when seal six is open, back in the end of chapter six, the people flee. They want to run away from, escape God's judgment. After the sixth trumpet in chapter nine, uh, the rest of mankind still did not repent. You see there in the end of chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Just a little side jab at C.S. Lewis's great divorce. I love the Platonism of C.S. Lewis. It makes a lot of difficulties in the Bible go away. But be careful just because he is smooth to read. There's a lot of error there. The Bible is a far more difficult book, more complete and satisfying book. Not quite as philosophically neat, perhaps, or simple, at least in immediate appearance. The people here don't repent. In bowls 4 and 5 over in chapter 16, when they're poured out, they still don't repent. Look over in chapter 16, verse 9. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. In fact, after bowl six, they gather for further rebellion. And after bowl seven, we read here in chapter 16, verse 21, you see what they did? They cursed God. Why is hell eternal? The Puritan divine Richard Sibbs said, if thou couldst, thou wouldst sin eternally. And that is the reason sinners are punished eternally, because they would sin everlastingly. That seems to be the picture that we see of people's continuing sinful and remorseless responses to God's punishments here in the book of Revelation. So it is that we read the angel pouring out the third bowl of God's judgment there in Revelation 16, verses 5 and 6, saying, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve." 
God's wrath in the Bible is always, as J.I. Packer has observed, the wrath of a judge administering justice. God is wrathful against sin. That is the consistent message of Scripture. So we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Friends, God should repay those opposing Him in His creation. It was right to do so. And in these visions, God was telling John's readers that He would do just that. And what about us today? Oh, friends, this is a hard message today. We don't even like to talk about human jails and prison. That kind of stuff is unpopular. So just... Just imagine the kind of reaction which many people have today when they read these biblical pictures of God's wrath. And the book of Revelation is, is complete with supernatural prisons, abysses, judgments of plagues and earthquakes, and even this eternal lake of fire. A number of years ago, a professor at Arizona, Alan Bernstein, wrote a book called The Formation of Hell. In this book, Bernstein put forward the idea, as the title might suggest, that the Christian doctrine of hell was gradually formed. The New Testament writers, he suggests, made their descriptions of hell all the more harrowing, the more external opposition and internal strife they faced. I guess it's no surprise then that Bernstein's practical conclusion for people reading the book is that Christians today should make, that's his verb, hell otherwise than it's traditionally been presented. The main problem he suggests with what has become the traditional Christian idea of hell, which is what we find in the book of Revelation, is not its torments, but the menace of the mere existence of the idea to those who deny Christianity. Now that's not too surprising a conclusion for one to come to who doesn't assume the reality of God's judgment as presented in the Bible. But friend, I'm quite certain that the menace of the idea will pale compared to the thing itself. Having said that, people who are poor or oppressed and they understand their problems come from a corrupt ruler or boss or an abusive father or a tyrannical landowner seem beyond their reach, they have a clear desire for justice. I remember Max Stiles telling me the story of working with InterVarsity in Central America and taking groups of American students to work up in the hills where there had been huge injustices committed against the certain people that he was working with. And a, a fundamentalist missionary sometime earlier had brought them a, what to American eyes looked like a fairly hokey video to show them about hell. And it showed actors kind of screaming in hell. And Max said that when his students from America saw it, they were embarrassed. But when they went into the villages to meet with them, to teach them as they did from time to time on a kind of regular rotation, one thing the villagers always wanted to see was that video. Because they thirsted for justice. They had absolutely no idea how in their world they could ever have anything like justice for what had been done to them. But that little hokey presentation gave them hope that there might be a God who cared and who would at some point say enough and bring justice. 
One thing Christians have traditionally longed for is justice. The justice which is brought with the second coming of the Messiah. And while many of us may find that strange, you can be sure there are lots of Christians sitting around the world tonight who would not find that idea strange at all. Perhaps the horrible judgment can only fully seem right to us in heaven. I don't come from a particularly Christian family. My parents weren't Christians. My extended family weren't Christians. All my kids aren't Christians. I don't really do very well emotionally trying to think about hell with specific individuals that I've known and loved. But you know what? I assume that's because I'm kind of messed up right now. I'm not glorified. I have more empathy and sympathy with someone made in the image of God who sins against God when God has never been anything but good to them, and extraordinarily so, than I have sympathy for God himself. I think when I'm loosed from the bonds of this creation, that's when emotionally I'll probably be able to deal with that as I should. And I'm not really looking to before then. I think then I'll feel about and with and for God perfectly as I should. And while I desire to be more like that, I'm not surprised that I'm not more. Certainly none of us here and now know every real wrong done in every place at every time by everyone who has ever lived, nor do we have the moral character to know how wrong wrong is. But the God of the Bible does. He knows it all. He knows everyone. And as long as God is alive, the crucial witness to every act of wickedness and injustice committed in the history of the world lives and calls for justice. He stands as an eternal, ever-present, ever-truthful witness and an ever-wise, ever-merciful, and ever-just judge. There will be fairness. I remember as a school child being interested in the teacher raising the very common question of whether or not you can hear a tree falling in a forest if nobody's there to hear it. Did it make any sound? With God, there's no such thing, finally, as a sin committed in secret. There never has been one, and there never will be one. The eternal presence of God underscores the reality of wrong and the difficulty of forgiveness and the righteousness of His wrath. God's wrath is personal and certain and final and horrible and right. This is when I begin my conclusion, and the people in my church know that means I'm about two-thirds done now. (laughs) Back in 1937, H. Richard Niebuhr memorably summarized the liberal theology of the generation before him as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. My question to you, friend, is this. Is this the liberal theology of yesterday? Or is it the current theology of many of our evangelical churches today? In our sermons? In our songs? In our prayers? In our conversations? Jesus as an example, everybody loves that. Much talk of kingdom, of justice, of reign, of rule, of transforming. Little talk of judgment. Sensitive to people by not mentioning their sins. 
speaking of God a lot, but of his wrath, not at all. But friends, when you leave the wrath out of your picture of God, you begin to lose the biblical picture. From the second century heretic Marcion on, it seems that people have been making the same error by pitting the wrathful God of the Old Testament against the loving God of the New Testament. But friends, it is in the New Testament that we read Paul's words to the Ephesians about their sins and some who were teaching that God wouldn't judge them for their sins. Paul wrote in chapter 5, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Oh, friends, do not be deceived. God hates sin. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Praise God that in Christ, he delivers us from this wrath. You know, the more you study, the more you see that the wrath of God is not a topic for the narrow-minded or the hard-hearted. Getting the wrath of God right is essential to getting the gospel right. Do you see that? With no understanding of the wrath of God, the cross slumps into a question mark. What's Jesus doing? What do it mean? Why do it like that? Saved from what? The minister was asked. Saved from God. Saved from God's own wrath against our sins. God's personal, certain, final, horrible, and right wrath. It is from God's own wrath that you and I need to be saved. What did Paul say in Romans 5, 9? Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus Christ? This is what Paul had written earlier to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. When Paul recounted that these Christians had correctly done, they had turned to God to serve him and, quote, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You see, the significance of Jesus is plotted specifically by its relationship to the wrath of God. How does he affect our relationship to God's wrath? Because we've got God's wrath coming. It's right. It comes to us. Unless, unless Jesus... Jonathan Edwards reportedly saw more conversions through his preaching on Romans 3, 19 and 20 than any other text in his ministry. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. What was it Paul said to the Corinthians? Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 12, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Friends, the whole story of mankind can be summed up in these words. Holiness, sin, wrath, and salvation. God's holiness, our sin, God's wrath, and God's salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. That's the story. That's what this church is about. That's what every truly Christian church represented here tonight is about. You, you see how it all hangs together. That story all is one story. So I'm not surprised that modern Christians who spend little time considering their own sins, no time for prayer of confession in a church service, 
No time considering the sinfulness of sin. What makes it so bad? I'm not surprised that such Christians seem less and less concerned about Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. Well, sin's no big deal. What's the big deal of what Jesus did on the cross? He who thinks lightly of sin thinks lightly of the Savior. Most people in church history said that. Anselm said that. Spurgeon said that. It's true. He who thinks lightly of sin thinks lightly of the Savior. If you don't know something of the wrath you deserve and why you deserve it, then you don't know why Christ came. And you don't know why Christ died. I was doing a membership interview once years ago with a friend from Connecticut, actually. And he had real questions about eternal torment. He liked our church. He agreed with the statement of faith, except there is a clear statement about the eternal nature of punishment. And we use the New Hampshire Confession. Our church adopted it in 1878. We've never changed it. But he had questions about that. So, being the good kind of tight pastor I am, I said, well, why don't we just wait right here? Jonathan, let me give you a couple of things to read. Let's think about things. Then why don't you get back to me in a couple of weeks? So he did. I gave him some passages of Scripture. Gave him a couple of sermons of Jonathan Edwards. He went away and read. A couple of weeks later, he phones me back. And he said, Mark, I can't believe what I was thinking. I see so clearly now that God's wrath is eternal. And it has made the hymns that we sing so much more sweet to me. God's love seems more amazing to me. Christ's cross has been made more precious to me. You know, in the Old Testament, the Lord said to His people through Jeremiah that they were to take the cup filled with His wrath and that they were to make nations drink it. In the New Testament, those who worship the beast are also supposed to drink. As He says in Revelation 14, the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. He will be tormented with the burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And then in Revelation 16, verse 19, when the final installment of God's wrath is described, we read that, this is Revelation 16, 19, the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Oh, friend, do you understand why Jesus came to die? He came to drink the cup of God's wrath. You need to understand something of what that is. That's what Jesus said in Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In Mark's gospel, a little bit more is recorded, which helps to see what is a central part of God's plan in this. We read in Mark 14, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then Matthew makes it clear that Jesus prayed about this twice. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. John's gospel also shows us how important this was. In John 18, after Peter attempted to defend Jesus with force, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Oh, as the hymn writer said, dearly, dearly has he loved. To understand the cross of Christ, 
you must understand something of the wrath of God. You must understand, as Ephesians 2, 3 says, all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the nature of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But friends, it was this wrath that Christ drank for us fully, if we are His. Christ became, as Paul said in Romans 3.25, a propitiation for our sins. He became, that is, a sacrifice bearing God's wrath for us. And to understand this world we live in and to make sense of it, you must understand something of the wrath of God. What of all the injustices done in God's world? The unjustly spurned spouse, the falsely accused and slandered employee, the robbed elderly person, the people who have been bought and sold like property, who have been literally caressed and wrongly treated and exploited, the parents who have been wrongly disobeyed, the children who have been abused. What of the murdered child? What of the wrongs represented on the front pages of the newspaper in the town you come from just today? Let alone those larger crimes, what the millions of Ukrainians would say to us, and Jews and Cambodians and North Koreans and Christians who lay dead from the sinful, murderous actions of just the last few decades of human history. What of millions of enslaved and racial prejudice and hatred and violence and killings? And friends, I could go on and on and on and on in the annals of fallen human history. About all of this is nothing to be done. Is that justice? Is that right? A cool response of composure and acceptance. Is that anything other than immorality? Nihilism? But finally, though, it's not these crimes against humanity alone, as great as they are. But it is the offense against God that calls out to be answered. And it will be. There's no doubt about that. God's wrath will fall. We could keep going all night. Let me just quickly bring it to a point. The question for you is, will God's wrath, His certain, final, horrible, right wrath for your sins fall on you? Or has it fallen on Christ? If you trust in Christ alone, it has fallen on Him, and you are saved from the wrath of God. If not, I tell you, it will fall on you. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the cross where you paid the price for the sins of all of us who would repent of our sin and trust in you. Oh Lord, we have heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, oh Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. We pray even here tonight. In Jesus' name. 
You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.